We're in for an awesome gathering. Are you warm? Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Let's stand together and continue in our worship, shall we? Yeah. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that with you we can do all things. Thank you, Father, that we have the victory. Amen.
you up in this place this morning. We honour you. It is our great privilege to come together as a part of your family in this city and to praise you, to celebrate the name of Jesus, uh, to even remind ourselves that you are victorious. And so thank you for this opportunity. Father, we declare your blessing over our city in Jesus' name, that you would give our leaders wisdom, that you would bless our mayor in Jesus' name. Father, over our nation, that the prime minister and the politicians would know something of the wisdom of God as they wrestle with some very difficult decisions. Father, we also think and cast our mind across the globe this morning. There's all sorts of stuff going on. People need to know you in every country, every nation of the world. And so it is a huge privilege for us to partner with what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. It is great to see you. You're looking fine, sounding fine this morning. Why don't you say hello to a few people before you sit down? Tell them they look great. They smell great. They did a good thing. Great decision coming to church this morning. Having a good day. Well, who's had a birthday, a wedding anniversary, maybe announced a pregnancy in the last week? Anyone? Any birthdays? Any wedding anniversaries? Any? Come out and see me if there is. I'll come down. Let's find a space down here somewhere. Oh, sorry. Happy birthday. Birthday? Happy birthday. How many children is that now? Number four is on its way. Congratulations. Well done. Birthday? Happy birthday. Any other birthdays, wedding anniversaries? That's it. Don't go anywhere. We're going to pray for you. We're going to declare God's blessing. Why don't you jump up on your feet? Let's declare God's blessing over everyone's had a birthday, wedding anniversary, got a baby coming. Here we go. Father, thank you for your family. We declare blessing, health, favour, prosperity, purpose and protection over them this year. Activate your love and goodness in Jesus' name. In Jesus name. Amen. Happy birthdays. Happy birthdays. Anniversaries. Happy babies. Happy babies. I've got a couple of things that I, uh, to tell you about this coming week. On Friday night, we have Tear Fund. Uh, launching their, let me get it right, the Ethical Fashion Guide here on Friday night. Now, I think this is a, a fantastic thing. It's part of our um, global mandate we're doing this, this year. We've had some great events throughout the week in the last couple of weeks. Last week, there was a, um, a seminar on slavery and, slavery and trafficking. And that was very, very good, very informative, very moving. Some of the plight of people around the globe is, is absolutely terrible. But we are in a position where we can do things to help. And even this last year in, uh, with our global mandate, we've partnered with Tear Fund and we've been able to provide specifically counselling and relief to uh, women in Asia primarily who have been caught up in trafficking and have escaped or got out. And we've been able to specifically um, provide counselling to help them heal and get on and live a great life afterwards. So that's because of your generosity that we've been able to do some of those things. Also, of course, we've got Anna and Nam 
uh, who are working all over the place now, and they're really um, investing themselves into uh, areas like India, where they can help with these kind of issues and help bring healing and wholeness to communities. I think actually right through everything just about that we've got with our global mandate, we're trying to invest and build in the community as well as share the gospel, which is really, really quite exciting. Anyway, this Friday we've got uh, TFN's Ethical Fashion Guide. It's a show. It's going to be here. It's a fashion show. And um, what TFN have done and what they're releasing in New Zealand is the Ethical uh, Fashion Guide. And they've researched businesses that sell clothing. Uh, in our country, and they've given them all a grade. And if you've got an A grade, that's really good. If you've got an F grade, that's not so good. Actually, that's terrible. And what they've done is they've tracked all the clothing right back to the source of where it's come from. And they've, they've asked the questions and the companies have worked with them. Uh, are their businesses actually exploiting people? And if they are, they get a low grade. And if they're not, they get a good grade, basically. So, um, what they're doing is there's a fashion tra- uh, show this, this Friday night here and they're going to really recommend some places that have worked with them and they've come out with a great grade. So when you're buying clothes, you can know that you're supporting businesses that are helping the world, let's hope. So it's a good thing. Is that all right? Yeah, you're very quiet. There's a men's breakfast this Saturday too, 7am. Love to see you there. That'll be awesome. There's one other thing. We have a video from Pastor Kalyan in India. Hi there, Activate Church. Thank you so much for your partnership with uh, Harvest Apostolic Ministries in India. But even before that, since 1994, when I was in the Bible College in Singapore, your church in Hamilton and the Christ Church. It is these two churches that supported me even for my Bible college training. So it has been 23 long years now and uninterrupted partnership. And today it is almost 18 years since I came to India. We have little over 100 churches, about 120 staff and the ministry is continuing to grow. I believe we are just stepping into another phase where they're changing the gear. Acceleration is taking place. By 2030, we believe we will be able to plant a thousand churches and through networking, another 4,000 churches. I talked all about this to Pastor Sheridan. I think he will give you the details. But thank you for believing in me and partnering with me. Two more years ago, we will celebrate our Silver Jubilee. It's exciting. It's been a great journey with Pastor Kalyan and um, not only churches, you know, in Bihar, for example, I think there's five schools there that uh, is providing great education. The, the, the government school system's not good up there at all and uh, their schools are fantastic. And so we're partnering with all of that. It's fantastic. And the Punjab preschools, there's lots of great things going on. Just a, a little plug and just to stir you to think about next year. Pastor Kalyan is, takes and has been taking tours into the Bible lands and through the Bible lands. And I've been talking with him about that. And what we're trying to do is to put together a tour for us and others who would like to join us next year in April to the Bible lands. It'd be about nine days. And uh, 
it looks like we can make that happen for $5,000 a head. That includes your airfare, your accommodation, all your food, entry fees to everything. All you've got to do is get on the aeroplane. And uh, so we're looking at April next year. I need roughly 46 people to make it work. So the seats are going quite quickly by the feel of it. I had a few people talk to me in the break. So if that interests you, next April, we're trying to make that happen. So that'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. Well, we're going to celebrate. Now, actually, kids, you need to go. Sorry, I forgot all about you. How could I forget you right in front of me? Have a great morning. Thank you, leaders. Yeah, you'd think so. You would think so. Have a great time, kids. This morning, we are incredibly blessed to have Shane Willard with us. And uh, I will introduce him properly shortly, but it's wonderful to have you, Shane. And uh, thank you for making yourself available. Our young adults are at camp this weekend, if you're wondering where they are. I was out there with Shane yesterday. We had a great time with them. Well, this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And uh, so, Lance, why don't you come and lead us? There you are, right there. Please give Lance a big hand as he comes. Good morning. Are we all enjoying winter? So any of you people travel on the desert road this morning to get to church? Because you didn't. It's closed. So uh, I was quite fortunate I didn't um, get out of bed until half past eight, so I missed the cold. So it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> Communion has uh, been celebrated by every branch, virtually every branch of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. It is a ceremony that both unites and divides Christians. It expresses our common faith in Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, various aspects of the ceremony have caused controversy. For example, when should it be celebrated? Who should administer it? Who should take part? Even what type of bread and wine should be used? But in the midst of the controversy, it's easy to get sidetracked from the central message of the celebration. Jesus went to the cross and died for us. Communion is all about Jesus. Jesus instituted communion as a way for his disciples to remember his death and sacrifice. Communion is a celebration, remembrance, and proclamation of Christ's death. It reminds us and declares to us that Christ is with us, Christ died for us, and Christ is now alive and working in us. Excuse me. Communion was initiated during the Jewish Passover celebration. The Passover meal was celebrated every year by the people of Israel to remember their deliverance from the slavery in Egypt. In his last supper with his disciples, Jesus symbolically reinterprets many of the elements of this meal to convey a deeper understanding of the purpose of his death to his disciples. Just as God delivered the Israelites from Israel from Egypt, so Jesus' sacrificial death brings us deliverance from the slavery of sin. In Luke 22, Jesus said to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Unleavened bread was used. 
In Exodus, the children of Israel are told to only eat unleavened bread during the Passover, the time of Passover. All leaven or yeast had to be cleansed out of their houses as it represented sin. Jesus broke unleavened bread at Passover, signifying the sacrifice of his sinless life on our behalf. During Passover, a number of cups of wine are symbolically drunk together. One is the cup of redemption. It is a reminder of the blood of the unblemished lamb that was sacrificed by each family as the Israelites escaped from Egypt. If the blood of this lamb was painted on the doorposts of an Israelite's home, the angel of death would pass over them. In the same way, Jesus shared a cup of wine with the disciples representing his blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Communion is a symbol of the new covenant, which is a binding agreement between two parties. It is usually solemnized with seals and signs. Covenants were common in the ancient world, and God used this cultural practice when he made binding promises and required serious commitments from his people. Using the symbols and pictures of the Old Testament covenants, Jesus instituted a new covenant in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And in Jeremiah 31, we hear, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord for everyone, from the least to the wickest, wickest, least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. However, in contrast to the Old Testament covenants of works, this new covenant is unconditional and undeserved. It is a covenant of grace made possible through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. There have been a um, a number of very notable acts of communion, and one I remember with fondness is is a guy called Buzz Aldrin. He's an American engineer and former astronaut. As the lunar module pilot of Apollo 11, he and Neil Armstrong were one of the first two humans to land on the, on the moon, and Aldrin was the second person to walk on it. Before he stepped out of the lunar module on July the 20th, 1969, Aldrin took a small plastic container of wine and bread. He had brought them to the moon from the Webster Presbyterian Church near Houston, where he was an elder. Aldrin had received permission from the Presbyterian Church's General Assembly to administer it to himself. Interesting, eh? He radioed to NASA, I would like to request a few moments of silence and to invite each person listening in, wherever and whomever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. He then ate and drank the elements. In Luke, we hear in the same way when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until it is meaning, its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, 
this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with, with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Before we take the elements, I'd really like you to please spend a moment contemplating what Jesus did for you and I at the cross and what it means to have someone with so much unconditional love for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing sacrifice you did for us on the cross. You were wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and died on the cross to pay the redemption price for our sin. As we come around communion this morning in grateful remembrance of, you, of what you did for us, we also come with a heart full of humble thanksgiving. We thank you that we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and clothed in your righteousness. By grace through faith, we praise, honour and bless your holy name. Amen. Amen. Please take the elements in your own time. stand together and continue in our worship. Breathe with 
turn winter into spring. Grace dissolves every fear in me. And your love brings me to my knees, brings me to my knees. My King forever, and you are all my heart desires.
of provision in Jesus' name. Restoration of relationships, of circumstances in Jesus' name. Sing what a powerful name it is one more time. Come on. The name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. One more time. What a powerful name it is. The name of
to remind ourselves, isn't it? Incredible power in the name of Jesus. The most powerful name in the universe. Well, we're greatly privileged this morning to have Shane Willard with us, all the way from Charleston, South Carolina. And um, Shane and I go back a long way now. Jan and I have known Shane for more than a decade. And uh, it's been wonderful over the years watching the way that God's using him. And um, you know, we're really privileged this morning. Shane, Shane speaks to tens of thousands of people. And he's given us the weekend to come and be in Hamilton with us, which is awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, like four of you are pleased about that. Yeah. Sorry about that, Shane. Only, only four want to see you. It's awesome that he's here, isn't it? I think it's fantastic. And um, Shane has a unique gift on his life and a... He's an incredible communicator and I just invite you this morning to go on the journey that he takes us on because he'll unpack some stuff like in a different way than you've had it unpacked before. Let God mess with you a bit if that's what God wants to do this morning. Because what I find is the result of spending time with Shane is that God looks better, the Bible looks better, I've got less boundaries around things than what I used to have and I normally wrecked in my head and I've got to sort a few things out when he goes so it's a great journey and I really enjoy that so Shane why don't you come make yourself at home and comfortable enjoy Thank you very much you can be seated uh, if you're the type like spell along in an actual bible Colossians chapter 2 we'll start there go back to Exodus end up in Genesis and then come back to the gospels all in about 35 minutes it's going to be awesome Really rapid fire stuff. For those, for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do for a living. I travel and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor with his rabbi training. So all my stuff comes from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So I'm qualified to sort your head out. So be careful what you say to me. On, on your way out, you're going to see a gigantic table there with our resources. If you can't find my resource table, see a doctor. It's taking up half the room out there. And if you look at that and you think, man, why would you carry all that around with you? Well, the reason is, is because we make a whole lot of money from it, all right? And the reason we do that is because we believe, along with your church, that we have a global mandate not to just simply go to heaven when we die, but to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so um, we use 100% of our profit from that um, to um, support um, orphanages in China that take care of mentally handicapped kids. Two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a recovery home in Cape Town. Um, just to give you uh, one, one testimony from that table, in the month of April, um, I was speaking for a gigantic church, huge. I'd never been there before. And they responded at the table so well that we were able to meet our obligations and we were able to give 5000 extra dollars to uh, a group of people who are building um, reasonable housing for a leper colony in India. And, um, and so these people were living on, on cardboard. And that, that's not acceptable. And so it was going to cost 5000 bucks to build them reasonable shelter uh, for, their, for their life. And 20 of us gave 5000 But that was because of that table. And so what I'm asking you to do is on your way out before you go eat lunch, if you'll let me put something in your hands that will change the way you look at God. 
Also, you put something in our hands that helps us feed, clothes, shelter, and educate mentally handicapped kids in China and, and, and get girls out of sex trafficking in Cape Town and, and help participate with, with what God is doing around the world. I think that's a pretty good deal. I mean, if, if Jesus asked you, why are you following me? If your only answer is, I'd hate to go to hell when I died, that's very degrading to Jesus. All right, that, is, that just quite frankly stinks to high heaven, right? If that's your only answer, why are you following me? Well, I hate to go to hell when I died. That'd be, like, that'd be like your wife asking you, why'd you marry me? And your only answer is, well, the other chick was ugly. You don't want to do that, right? right? That, that would be a horrible thing to say, right? Option B, stunk. No, no. If Jesus asked you, why, why are you following me? Your answer should be, I'm following you because I love you. And, and, and I want to partner with you to bring your kingdom and your rule and reign to this earth because I think your story for the earth is better than the one we've written for ourselves. I think that would be the best way to go. Um, I also have an online mentoring program up and rolling where once a month I'm in an online classroom teaching people how to see the Bible like my rabbi taught me. So if you're interested in that, um, come on in. So I want to talk to you this morning about our global mandates. Um, I want to talk to you about confronting oppression. I want to talk to you about two sides of the cross. I'm going to talk for 30 seconds about one side of the cross, and I'm going to talk for the whole rest of the time about the other. Um, this is Paul's observation uh, about, he's trying to explain uh, the significance of a risen Christ to a group of people in Colossae who really wouldn't have had a whole lot of uh, context for that. And so here's his words uh, about that. If you could bring that up for me. Here we go. It says PowerPoint up at the top. Here we go. Here it comes. I can feel it. Uh, they just trust me. I think I could quote it. It says, once you were dead in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Once you were dead. Oh, look, that was pretty good. Once when you were dead in your, uncirc- in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Now, I went and looked that word up all in the original language, and the word all in Greek actually is all. So when all says all, let's leave all all because all is better when we leave it all because if we make it not all, we run the risk of us not being at all. So when all says all, let's leave it all because it's just better that way. That's pretty good right there. You're kind of being a tough crowd. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So one side of the cross was that you don't owe God anything anymore. That, that's how he frames it, essentially. Uh, it's the forgiveness of sins. And we embrace that. We, we just took communion where we remember that. We embrace that and call that awesome and pure and lovely and good. And we should, we should thank God for that. And it's worth a 10-part series by itself. But when you have one sermon at one moment at one time, you can't talk about everything. But we embrace that and we honor that. But I want to spend the whole rest of the time talking about the second part that he says. Watch this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So one side of the cross was the forgiveness of sins. But the other side of the cross, evidently, Paul insists that Jesus did a public in-your-face confrontation to anything that causes people oppression. He defeated the things that were ruling over people. Let's say it this way, that God is not just interested in forgiving us of sins. He wants us to be set free from the things that are oppressing us. Let's be specific, that God didn't die just to forgive us for an outburst of anger. He died to set us free from the hold anger might be having over us. 
He didn't just die to forgive us of that moment of lust in front of a computer screen. He died to set us free from the hold of the slavery that lust might bring to our life in the long term. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins. It's about being set free here. Let me say it another way. There's an element of salvation that is someday. Someday the lion and the lamb. Someday no more pain. Someday no more sorrow. Someday no more crying. Someday what we would say heaven. So there is a someday element of salvation, but to Paul, there is also a here, now, today element of salvation. And I want to talk to you about that one. I want to talk to you just about that one. Uh, now, now in, in, to understand this, we've got to go back to Exodus. As far as I know, this is the first mention in the whole Bible of an idea that we would get the word salvation from. Here's what it says, Exodus chapter 3. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I'm going to come down and rescue them. Now, the word rescue there is the same word we get the word salvation from. Easily could have translated it, I'm going to come down and save them. I'm going to come down and deliver them. I'm going to bring salvation to that situation. So in this context, salvation has nothing to do with going to heaven when you die. Now, don't shut me off. We just said there's an element to that, and we embrace it. But in the scriptures, there's both. There's this idea of salvation, but then oftentimes what you'll find is that when the Bible's talking about salvation, it's talking about something going on here. In this context, there's no context about heaven when we die. This is about God observing that somebody or something is doing something to you and he is not pleased with that and he is not just going to save you when you die. He's going to bring you heaven right here now today. This is the part of the cross that says, wait a minute, when we go into Uganda, we should bring the gospel, but when they say the sinner's prayer and get saved, we shouldn't leave them hungry. We should also be bringing them food and medicine and shelter. There is one part of salvation that is someday, but there's a whole other part of salvation that is God's heart to set us free from oppression here, now, today. Now, to understand this, we got to understand something else. Let's go back even earlier in the story. This is Genesis chapter 2. This is what it says. There was a river that was coming out of the, uh, that was watering the garden that flowed from Eden. And for there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was called Pishon. It winded through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land was perfect. Now there's a huge literary play on words here. The word Pishon, if you break it down to its root, and even in ancient Hebrew, they didn't write with letters. They wrote with pictures. So every Hebrew letter is a picture. Every Hebrew word would be a comic strip. It tells a story. In the root of the word Pishon is the idea of something being consumed but then bursting forth with multiplication. Let me explain it this way. An extinct volcano. We thought it had no life left in it, but suddenly it's rumbling with new life. We thought it was dead, but now it's alive. It's interesting. In Hebrew, there's only 8,000 words. So the root word for hope, the root word for surprise, and the root word for resurrection share the same root. And that's, that should be obvious because nothing is more surprising than running into a dead guy on the street, right? Right? Like, if you, if you see a guy die, and you go to his funeral, and you watch him be buried, and three days later, you run into him and say a garden, surprise, sort of covers it, right? And so you have hope, 
surprise, that kind of thing. Let's say, let's call it hope, Pishon hope. And it says that, that it's winding through the entire land of Havilah. Havilah just means suffering. So when an ancient person read this passage, here's what they read. There's a river called hope, and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. The, the idea is, is that if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. And, and, and the, thank you. Thank you. And, and the, the issue is, is how do you find the river of hope? Because there's lots of rivers in the land of suffering. There's a river called give up, a river called sell out, a river called compromise, a river called make matters worse. There's all kinds of rivers in the land of suffering, but you don't want to find those. You want to find the river of hope. And it says this, that you can always know you found the river of hope because the river of hope has perfect gold in the riverbed. Now, it's interesting about that, that word gold. Gold has three letters in it as well. The, the, the first letter is an eyeball. The second letter is a man harvesting supply. And the third letter is a house or a house of God. So when an ancient Hebrew person read the word gold, what they would have read is, behold, the one who brings us substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. Now, it's interesting about this is, and I know this to be true. A guy in Perth showed me this. Um, I read about it, and then he showed it to me. If you take perfect gold, perfect gold, it takes one part of perfect gold to 100,000 parts of water to make a colloidal suspension, and it will turn all the water blood red. It looks like red, deep red Kool-Aid. There, there was a guy that did it for me. He was explaining it's how they make stained glass because once you have red, you can add and subtract things in order to make different colors. He, he did it for me. He put it in a vial for me. It was like that. And it looked like deep red cordial or deep red Kool-Aid. I used to carry it around with me if I, was, if I knew I was going to preach this. And I'd stand at the door holding it saying, hey, welcome to church. You picked a great day to come. And always at least one person would stop and say, why are you carrying your blood sample around? What's going on? There, it was a little vial like this. One time I was landing in a plane and the pressure changed and the thing exploded and I lost it. So, but, but, but I've actually seen this. I want you to think about this. I'll make sure you're paying attention. If the river called Hope that's winding through the land of suffering, if it has perfect gold in the riverbed, what color would the river be? Red. It would be a river of blood. It would be, river, it would be a red river. So in, in Hebrew literary imagery, anytime water is turning red, it means hope flows through suffering. Let's review just for a second. So Pishon is hope, Havilah is suffering, and gold is behold the one who brings the substance for survival, brings it to us in the house of God. To summarize that, we'll say it this way. There's a river called hope, and it's winding through the entire land of suffering because behold the one who brings the substance for survival, brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. So to the Hebrew people, when water turned red, that was a good thing. It meant we're in the land of suffering, but hope is coming. Fast forward to Egypt. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I'm going to rescue them. Think about your Sunday school lessons with the flannel graph if you're old enough, right? right? How does God get the children of Israel out of Exodus, out of Egypt? Through the Exodus. And how does he do that? Through a series of? Ten plagues. What was the first plague? All the water turns to blood. To the Egyptians, that was a curse. But to the Hebrew people, there would have been a buzz in the camp. Hey, did you hear? All the water's turning red. We might be in the land of suffering now, but hope is coming because hope flows through suffering. How do you know that? When water turns red, hope is on the way. God gets them out of Egypt, and he leads them to the banks of the... Red 
Ah, hope flows through suffering. Red water. They, they get across the Red Sea. God says, Moses, I want you to come up the mountain. So Moses walks up Mount Sinai. If you've ever seen Mount Sinai, that is a walk. That's a hike. Goes up Mount Sinai, gets all the way up Mount Sinai, and God says, I forgot to tell you to bring Aaron. Go back and get him. Which would have been an interesting conversation, I think. Anyway, so he comes back down. Think about your story, right? Moses comes back down, and what does he find? He finds them worshiping a gold cow. And what does he do? He loses the plot, and he beats the gold cow into powder, and he makes them throw the powdered gold into the water that's coming out of the rock, and he makes them drink it. Wait a minute. When they throw gold into water, what's going to happen? Red hope flows through suffering. This is even in nature. Um, I've never given birth, nor have I ever seen anybody give birth, nor do I think I've missed anything. So everything I know about childbirth, I learned from Gray's Anatomy. Now, which is a bunch of people pretending to be doctors, I understand that, but you can learn a lot. And what happens? What happens is a woman gets really pregnant. And then this is how it always starts on TV. She'll go, whoa! My water broke. Water coming down her leg. Now, when the water breaks, what happens? She enters into a time of labor, or we could say suffering. She enters into a time of suffering. And in a time of suffering, which is infinitely better today than it's ever been in the history of the world because of all kinds of medical technology, right? But there's still labor, right? What happens? What happens? Two fluids mix. Blood and water. And when blood and water comes together, what happens? A bundle of joy. So in the greatest suffering a woman might ever know, out comes a bundle of joy. When blood and water mix, hope flows through suffering. <laughs> Years later, that's pretty good right there. I thought it was all right. You look like a bunch of unimpressed people, but that's, I thought it was all right. This is Hamilton. Impress us. The, Years later, years later, there's this rabbi that shows up. Pretty important to us. His name's Jesus. We would say he's the Messiah. Very, very important guy. Shows up, and he goes to a wedding in Cana. Jesus rolled deep, you know. Shows up at a wedding, and he performs his first miracle. What was his first miracle? He turns all the water into, ah, what was his point? To provide adult beverages for the party? No, not the point. The point was, to a bunch of oppressed people under the Roman Empire, if you turn all the water red, what are they hearing? Ah, hope flows through suffering. Hope flows through suffering. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're in the land of suffering now, but hope's coming. Years later, years later, the same rabbi is having a very bad day. And he ends up on a cross, which I think we could all agree it's a bad day. And the writers of the Gospels say this. They say that at the end, a guy, a Roman soldier sticks a spear into his side. And what does it say come out? A steady flow of blood and water. What are they communicating? They communicate, hey, wait a minute, at the foot of the cross is the forgiveness of sins, but it is also hope for every bit of suffering you might ever come against. This, there are two sides of the cross. One is the forgiveness of sins, which we celebrate. The other 
is the confrontation of oppression. Paul frames it this way in Colossae. He says that the cross was an in-your-face public confrontation to oppression and rulers that are ruling over people. This is an in-your-face confrontation. And here's the thing. If you take Christianity down to its most elemental level, if you had to summarize Christianity in one sentence to someone who had no idea about it, what would you say Christianity is? Is, is Christianity knowing the Bible? Now, is Christianity attending Bible study? Now, is it coming to church regularly? No, although we embrace those things. At its most elemental level, Christianity is a group of people who have chosen to, to be like Christ to their community. That's what it is. It's people who've chosen to be like Jesus in their world because we believe that Jesus' version of the world story is better than the one we've written on our own. So what I did is I went back to the Gospels and I reread all four of them and I was looking for any time Jesus confronted oppression. And once I was looking for it, wow, did I find it everywhere. Because here's the thing. If Jesus was all about confronting oppression, and we're supposed to be like Jesus, then we had better be a group of people who regularly confront oppression. Should we proclaim the gospel of forgiveness? Yes, it's called good news. But part of good news is also saying, we're not just going to leave you forgiven. We're going to meet your needs. We're going to confront your oppressors. We're going to leave you in a better state on this earth than we found you because Jesus did that for people. Yeah. Like there was this one time. There was this guy. His name was Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He was up a tree. And Jesus stopped the whole crowd and invited Zacchaeus to dinner. And Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that he said, hey, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus said, that's it. Salvation has come to your house. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Oh, by the way, when I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is always Yes. Let's have a bit more Chiefs All Blacks gusto with that, okay? All right. Is Jesus allowed? Yes. Can you get saved by giving half what you have to the poor? <laughs> Why not? Was Jesus joking? Zacchaeus gives half of what he has to the poor. That's his response to Jesus. Jesus goes, That's it. Salvation has come to this house. Is Jesus allowed? Yes. Does he have to run it by us? No. <laughs> what do you mean? No sacrifice? No temple visit? No sinner's prayer? That we made up in 1830? <laughs> no altar call? No Romans 10, 9, and 10? I know it surprises Christians that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written. But they did. <laughs> Think about it. What was the only way to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So when your job forbidden you from going to the only place salvation was available, what hope did you have? Jesus circumvented the entire oppressive system of religious power and said, no, did you see his heart change? He responded to me, and that's enough. 
That is in your face stuff. Like there's this one time. It says Jesus went by a prostitute's house. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? Because <laughs> what was going on at a prostitute's house in the first century? Business, right? Which leads to this question. Would there ever be a worse place to run into Jesus? <laughs> imagine that. You met, Jesus is like between customers. You imagine that. The guy coming out of the back room and he's like, Oh, Jesus. Hey, man. I was just here to use the toilet. And it says that the, the prostitute was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus say? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed? Can you get saved by washing his feet with your hair? No sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10, no temple visit. And aren't you glad that's not the rule for all my bald brothers in the room? All my bald brothers in the room. I mean, for you to wash his feet with your hair, it'd be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. <laughs> See, people say, Jesus is the only way, Shane. Jesus is the only way. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Don't think too hard about that. You're like, oh, yes, that's true. But to say Jesus is the only way and to say my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus, that's two different things. What you see in Scripture is Jesus meeting people right where they were. In, in the first century, what was the only way for that prostitute to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. It's a problem. Jesus circumvents the entire religious system of oppression, and he does an in-your-face confrontation, and he calls her forgiven without a temple ritual. Yes. <laughs> There's this one time. Since Jesus was preaching, there's a paralyzed guy who couldn't get in, you know. And it says that four friends cut a hole in the roof or something and lowered the guy down. It is the single most chaotic scene in Jesus' whole ministry. I don't care how good of a communicator you are, someone repels from the roof, it's over. Heck, if a bird flew in here, I'd, I'd be in trouble, right? This guy comes down from the roof, and this is what it says. And Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you get saved that way? <laughs> you say, Shane, how far do you take that? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. I have no idea. I just know it's in there. I don't know how far to take it. But here's what I do know. If you're a mom and you're believing for your unbelieving children, you keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff. In the first century, what was the only way for that man to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. They can't pay the temple tax. Jesus circumvents the entire system of religious oppression, and he says, no, 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 no. We are going to do this by faith. That is in-your-face stuff. And he called him forgiven based on the faith of his friends. A later writer said, don't you know it's the faith of a saved wife that can save her unbelieving husband? Is Paul allowed to do that? 
I was preaching this once, and somebody asked me afterwards, what are you saying, Shane? What are you saying? Are you saying you can go to heaven by marrying the right woman? Okay, first, <laughs> first, if that's your question, you have missed my point entirely. That's number one. Number two, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is above my pay grade and yours. Can you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? I have no idea. All I do know is if you marry the wrong one, you will live in hell today. That's what I do know. You'll pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief. <laughs> oh. so all these unbelievable moments where Jesus in your face confronted things. Which leads me to my last story. It is the worst story in the whole Bible. I hated this story. It's one of these stories that you can't believe is in there. I literally saw one edition of an NIV, like when people used to carry actual Bibles around. They, I was preaching this as somebody showed me in their NIV, they're, they're at the bottom, there was a, uh, an asterisk that says, we're sorry, we're not even sure this should be in there, but it is, right? We don't know what to do with this. It is an awful, awful story. It's one of those stories that you likely have never heard preached before. And the reason you've never heard it preached before is because pastors secretly hope you don't notice. It is awful. It is awful. And the story is found in John chapter 5. Now, we're not going to read it. I'll tell the story. I'll tell it well. It's the story of the pool of Bethesda, okay? Essentially, this is what it says, that there was a, inside the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethesda. And occasionally, an angel would stir the water of the pool. And when the angel stirred the water, only the first sick person in got healed, nobody else. Is anybody here okay with that? That is awful. You know what that makes God seem like? It makes God seem like this. He's in heaven, and he's bored, and he needs some entertainment. So he says, hey, get me an angel over here. I'm bored. Now listen, when I tell you, I want you to go down there to that pool and stir the water. And what we're going to do is we're going to heal one sick person and nobody else. That will successfully create a race amongst afflicted people. This is going to be awesome because nothing gets my God heart beating like a bunch of crippled people trying to move fast. This is going to be hilarious. And there's some bookie in heaven going, 20 to win 80, 20 to win 80, 300 to 1 on the wheelchair guy. That guy's got no legs, 3,000 to 1, right? Terrible thing. Then Jesus shows up and participates. Says he finds a guy that's 38 years there paralyzed. That's pretty sick. 38 years. Like we read over that. It takes one sentence. 30, I'm 41. I mean, Lord, it, it, 38 years is almost my whole life. And that guy's been there. That's a long time. Long time to be sitting there waiting to be healed. And Jesus shows up. And, he, and if you remove your Jesus goggles, he actually participates. He says, he's sarcastic. He says, essentially, what's the matter, man? The water doesn't work for you. And the paralyzed guy goes, uh, Rabbi, you know the rules. Only the first one in gets healed. My legs don't work. And that jerk over there with a sore throat keeps jumping in before everybody else. And I try to rationalize with them. I've been here 38 years. Can we take a number? They won't. Jerk with the sore throat jumps in, right? I added the sore throat part. Now, that's the basics of the story. Awful story. What a terrible story. Until I went to Israel. I was invited by a history expert in Jerusalem to come be mentored for three days. He invited me to speak at a synagogue, which I was really nervous about that. And um, part of my pay 
was being mentored by him in history. 14 hours a day, all week, he went around and taught me history. And um, we were coming into Jerusalem, and we walked by Bethesda. It is exactly where the Bible says it is. Inside the Sheet Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda. Here's how he taught me the pool of Bethesda. I'm quoting directly here. Yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda, right? And he walks away. I thought he had the same rule I have. We don't talk about the pool of Bethesda. It's just too awful. Here's the problem. He also gave me permission to stop him and ask questions, right? And so in your imagination, when you read the story of the pool of Bethesda in John 5, how big is it? Like I have an imagination, you have an imagination. We all would picture a certain thing. In my imagination, the pool of Bethesda was about as big as this room. And how deep would it be? I thought it'd be about like this. Why? Because crippled people are trying to jump in, right? It's too deep. It's a problem. So he says, yeah, that's the pool of Bethesda. Now, when he pointed, I couldn't believe what I saw. Let me show you a picture of the pool of Bethesda. Here's the picture, right? This is a picture of the pool of Bethesda. Um, the reason that picture is of such high quality is I took it myself. Um, photographers everywhere are trying to figure out how to get hands in their photographs, right? Now, it's amazing how I did that, just perfectly in the corner. Come on, you know you want to. Now, let me show you something. See this right here, right? Everybody say, I got a pointer here, right? See that, see that right there? That is a grown man walking across a bridge. The Pool of Bethesda is 100 meters long, by 35 meters wide, by 40 foot deep. It is humongous. You can't believe it. I mean, look at that. Look at the depth there. So I said to the history guy, I said, excuse me, I want to make sure I got my story straight. This is where the angel stirs the water and one person in gets healed? He said, yes. I said, well, excuse me, um, <clears throat> how many people died here? He said, what? I said, well, follow me here. Like, let's say you're crippled, right? And someone hollers out, Angel, stir the water! And you're like, oh! Right? And you don't realize till you're in the water that you're number two. You're so dead, bro. He looked at me like I had nine heads. He's like, this was his exact words, I am quoting. He said, you're joking. Everybody knows this. To which I was like, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you let me in on what everybody knows? Because <laughs> follow me here. If everybody knows something, and I don't know it, that literally makes me the dumbest person on earth. He said, hold on. I'm quoting now. He said, hold on. We got to talk about this. Because if you're thinking what I think you're thinking, that would make God awful. I said, yeah. He asked me two questions. One, what God was ruling Jerusalem when Jesus walked the earth? I said, Roman Caesar. It was the Caesar worship was the head religion. He said, correct. He said, there was upwards of 40 pagan gods operating in Jerusalem. There was Addis, Adonis, Horus, Mithra, Amun-Ra in the south, the goat god Pan in the north. There was Serapis. There was Dionysus. There, there was just a bunch of them, just to name a few. Anyway, he said, second question, he said, you didn't think the angel in John chapter 5 was the angel of our God, did you? I said, well, well, 
It crossed my mind, yes. He said, no, man. He said Bethesda was the epicenter of the pagan worship of the Greek god of healing Serapis. He said, where you're standing is, ancient, is an ancient pagan temple. This was where they operated at. This was a, Bethesda was a pagan place. where It was the worship of Serapis. Then he went, he looked, he looked all surprised. He goes, are there people in this world who think it's the angel of our God? I said, there's, there's a few, there's a few. Mostly in Australia, though, mostly. It's mostly as flipping Australians that just give the world all this bad information. Anyway, he said, no. He said, here's what happened, right? He said, this big pool was their front yard. The problem with it is, is it would overflow at times, and it's at a high point in the city, so the water would flow down into the city and cause mud problems. And so the city officials said to them, you got to sort this out. And so what they did is on the, on the back side of the temple, which is where the public had access, they, they built a catchment pool, like a small flood uh, retardant, like a flood, um, a flood catchment. I don't know what else to call it, right? And so when, when that pool was fixing to overflow, they would pull a lever and it would move water from one pool to the other pool. Let me show you a picture of the smaller pool. This, all I did was I turned around and did this. So here it is. So this is the smaller pool. Right? It's about the size of this room. It's very, very shallow. It was meant as a flood catchment. You could see where, um, where they would have holes that would allow for the, for, for the pool of water to come from one to the other. Now think about it. If you're moving water from the big pool to the small pool, what's happening in the water of the small pool? It's stirring or bubbling. So the Romans said, listen, let's tell the people that that's the angel of Serapis stirring the water. And, and Serapis was a god of healing. Let's tell them that only the first one in gets healed. And then people, sick, oppressed, afflicted people, will pay us a premium to sit the closest to the pool. And the, the, the priest of Seraphim said, whatever, that's fine, but no one's going to get healed, right? And so they, they used a plant. So what they would do is they would take someone who was already whole, they would have them pretend to be sick, they would let them know exactly when that thing was going to get pulled, and so they would jump in, and by the time they were shouting, the water was stirring around them, and then they'd walk out of the pool whole and healthy. The problem was is they were already whole and healthy, which only exacerbated the myth, and people were then paying more monthly premiums to sit closest to the pool. The whole story of Bethesda is about Roman and Serapis oppression of the poor and the afflicted. Well... If that's the case, now it's the best story in the whole Gospels because Jesus walks into the epicenter of pagan oppression of the poor and the afflicted and without the help of stirred water, he picks the sickest dude in the whole place and he heals him with no help, essentially demonstrating you all can sit around here and get duped for the rest of your life or you can follow me because the God I serve does not charge for healing. He doesn't do that. There's no way. We're not having that. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Bethesda was an in-your-face confrontation to, a, to an entire system of oppression of the poor and the afflicted. So if I ever start a church, I think I'll call it Bethesda. Because it's the place where Jesus sets people free from oppression. This is an in-your-face confrontation to an entire way of life. So the historian got done telling me the history story, you know. And I said to him, Where'd you read that? He said, what? I said, somebody somewhere is going to ask me, where'd I read it? Where did you read that? He said, Shane, I have no idea. He said, I live here. He said, I'm in my mid-60s. I've never considered till today that someone thought it was the angel of our God. He says, as a matter of fact, I don't even put it on my tours. I thought everybody knew that. 
I said, Bo, you might ought to include that one on the tour. <laughs> I said, no, seriously, where, where did you read that? He said, Shane, I, 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 I live here. I've never, it's, it's all around you. Look, there was half statues of Serapis. There was all this. He said, and look in the pool. Look at this, right? So, so this is the small pool. See that yellow plaque? Now, the light is sort of bad in the photograph, but, but watch, I think you'll be able to see it. Watch this. It says Temple of Serapis. It's, it's on a plaque in the middle of the pool. Everybody knows this. It gets worse. Next to the plaque was a billboard. The billboard was huge. Let me show you the billboard. See right here where it says Bethesda, right? See right here it says John chapter 5. <laughs> it's even telling the story on the billboard, right? Bethesda. John chapter 5, right? Watch this. Pagan medicinal baths. Pagan medicinal baths. It's on a billboard next to a plaque in the middle of the pool. Everybody knows this. Which leads me to this question. If we were wrong about Bethesda, what else could we be wrong about? Maybe we need to open more discussions about God instead of closing people off to anything that disagrees with us. Maybe we need to be more open to more learning and more conversations and more questions in an eternal pursuit of a living God. Which, which leads me to this question. What's driving you that you need deliverance from? I realize that for most of us, we've made a decision that sorted this part out. My question today is this part. What's on your life that you wish to God that God would set you free from it? Let's say it this way. What are we doing to help free others from their slavery? And where do we need salvation for our house today? Because here's the thing. If I understand scripture correctly at all, one thing it's very clear about is this, is what you make happen for others, God will make happen for you. And if Jesus was, a was an oppression confronter, and we're supposed to be like Jesus, then we should be confronters. So here's my question. In the last 30 days, where have you actively confronted oppression? Where have you written a check? Where have you went down someplace and helped somebody? Where have you done something for someone who could do nothing in return for you? For this, when, when this church or when Shane Willard uses the word global mandate, I want to be clear about what we mean by that. What we mean by that is that part of our global mandate is to plant churches, to share a gospel that sorts this out. But it is also to live a gospel that confronts that way of living and makes those people's lives better. And what I see with all these banners are infinite possibilities to actively participate with the risen Christ, not to just go to heaven when you die, but to be a part of bringing heaven to every place there's hell on this earth and to confront oppression everywhere we see it. Where have we done that in the last 30 days? 60 days. We're five months into this year. This year, Like we would all say it's important, but what are we doing about it? And my challenge to you this morning as a part of your month of global mandate is to, is to confront and to challenge and to say, where do we provide lip service to global mandate, but our actual actions haven't done a thing. And I'm urging you 
to not just embrace the part of the cross that lets you into heaven, but to embrace the part of the cross that sets you free today. I'm urging you not to just embrace the part of the cross that provides heaven for others, but to also embrace the part of the cross that is meant for us to confront their oppression right where they're living, and let's make this world a better place. That is what we're called to do in Hamilton, in New Zealand, in the world. That is what we're called to be. May we be well-rounded followers of Jesus who don't just follow this, but we also embrace that. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you and we honor you. We proclaim you're king. There's none like you. Lord, would you speak to our heart now about needs we could meet? I just want you to have a second before the Lord, and I want to remind you that you live in a country that's in the top 10 most affluent countries in the world. The things that upset you in general don't matter. When I hear a New Zealander complain about New Zealand, I'm like, my God, man, just where are you going to go? If you can't make it here, where are you going to go? You live in a country with motor cars and paved roads and stores that prepackage food for you. You have clean water in your tap, machines that do washing, another machine that does drying, world-class health care right down the road, and for most part, it is free. When I hear a New Zealander complain about anything, I'm like, you live in New Zealand. You have nothing to be upset about. This should offend the plight of the poor and the afflicted. What have we done? What are we willing to do? Lord, would you speak to our hearts about needs we could meet? People who can do nothing in return for us. And move us to be people who confront oppression everywhere. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your morning. I hope you really enjoyed that. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you were moved, inspired, challenged. I'd like to give an authentic invitation to come back tonight. Uh, it's a shorter service, and, um, and I've got something special set aside for you tonight. Um, I promise you it'll change your life. Listen, if you'll set aside an hour and 15 minutes or so to come by tonight, I promise it'll change your life. If it doesn't, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, I'll refund whatever they charge you to come, okay? So I, I'm not used to here, so I don't know what they charge on Sunday night for you to come, but whatever it is, I'm willing to pay for it out of my pocket if it doesn't change your life, okay? So come on back tonight. Um, don't stay home and watch NCIS. Let me help you. Gibbs gets the bad guy. That's how it goes. What happens, right? Come on by and, and let God do something in your life. Can't wait to see you tonight. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. <clears throat>
Yet it's so easy to sit back and go, well, what can we do? There's, is there anything we can do? There's a whole lot we can do. And uh, I am so proud in the right sense to be part of a church that really believes in global mandate. And we can and we do make a difference every year. I go to the Punjab. There's 35 kids in the preschool there. They're getting something of kingdom invested in them. They're getting great uh, care and education, which the, the government won't provide there. That's happening because as a church, we're supporting it. That's why it happens. It's absolutely fantastic. So I encourage you, consider what God would have you to do this year. And step out in faith. It'll be great. Thank you for coming this morning. If you're visiting with us, can I encourage you? There's a table at the back of the auditorium. There'll be someone there to greet you. I'd love to give you some information about who we are as a church, where we're heading, and uh, do anything we can to help you in your journey. That would be wonderful. Also, if the host team could ready yourselves, please, because we're about to receive an offering. This is, um, we're going to receive an offering to bless Shane. This is what he does for a living. He lives by faith. And uh, we want to sow into his ministry. Um, and we want to bless him for being with us this weekend. He can literally be anywhere in the world, but he's chosen to give us the weekend. And uh, actually, with that, I'll just give you a little heads up. We've got our School of the Spirit coming up in a couple of weeks. June 23rd, I think it is. This year, we've got John uh, Kens from Australia, from Melbourne coming. He's an Englishman from Melbourne. And we've got uh, Daz Chedal also coming. But next year, 2018, uh, Shane's coming to do it with us. So that'll be great. So I just better mark that in your diary yeah thanks team if you could receive that that would be great while they're receiving the offering uh, parents don't forget your kids I think someone was stranded out there for 45 minutes last week some poor little soul tough life as I finish receiving the offering let me pray Father I thank you for today I thank you that you've stirred us I thank you that we've been challenged I thank you for the incredible opportunity and privilege it is to be on this journey with you I also thank you that it's a journey that's not comfortable but it's one that leads us from glory to glory and it's one where you slowly but surely uh, change our heart into your likeness And so I pray that wherever we are this week and wherever we are, whenever we're there, you would help us be like Jesus. I ask that you would uh, fill every one of us with courage and determination that when opportunity presents itself, we'll step in, we'll say something, we'll do something. And at the end of the day, you'll receive the glory. Let your blessing rest on your church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming out today. We'd love to see you back tonight. Have a great week. I think they went. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it, eh? Let's leave with celebrating that we have overcome. Yeah?